0: I went out to the side. Nothing
1: was happening. Took a stroll downtown. Nothing was there. Sat in a puddle of leaves, rocks and mud, just to get my pants wet. Where am I at? That.
0: Everyone, I'm Aaron Good, and you're listening to the American Exception podcast. In this episode, we are honored to be joined by Anthony Montero. He is a former Temple University professor who was wrongfully fired at the behest of a red-baiting department chair named Malefi Asante. A campaign to see Montero reinstated ultimately failed, but not before enlisting such figures as Cornell West and Mark Lamont Hill. In 2016. Montero spearheaded the effort to hold a major conference at Temple University on the Black Radical Tradition. The event was a huge success, bringing in esteemed speakers like Angela Davis, Cornel West, Jeremiah Wright, Glenn Ford, Robin Kelly, Vijay Prashad, and Anthony Montero himself. In the years since, Montero has continued to work as a scholar and activist at the Saturday Free School in Philadelphia and at Black Agenda Report. Dr. Tony Montero, it's great to have you here today. Great to be here with you, Aaron. So we're going to be talking about something that is very much in your wheelhouse and uh, a little bit in mine, but not not nearly as much, and that is the Black radical tradition and its relationship to U.S. empire. Uh, What does the Black radical tradition mean to you? How would you uh, try to explain it to my audience who who may not be steeped in this? Yeah, uh,
1: that's a great question. Um, what is the Black radical tradition? Is is it an organization? Can we go out and say, here is the Black radical tradition? And I would say no. It is, in fact, an ideological, political tendency within the Black movement, but within American uh, radical thought. Uh, I, and everyone might not... Uh, Uh, trace its genealogy in this way. You know, I uh, see it as the first great response to two things. One, the defeat of Reconstruction, and two, uh, really intersecting events, the rise of American imperialism and American empire. So it is both radical and democratic and anti-imperialist. So for me, it is uh, pretty much a uh, 20th, 21st century phenomenon, which is American and Afro-American. It is not exclusive to black people, although it emerges out of the radical consciousness uh, of black folk, a position we're forced into Because of the defeat of Reconstruction, uh, which is a huge thing, much larger uh, than uh, most people, including most historians, and I would say parenthetically, certainly the historians of the 1619 Project, uh, which have no way of understanding Reconstruction, or for that matter, the American Revolution. But that's another question. But uh, so it is radical democratic, it is anti imperialist, increasingly it parallels all of the revolutionary and liberatory processes that occurred throughout the 20th century. And now in the 21st century, uh, we find ourselves, uh, and forgive me if I'm. You know, if this seems a bit obscure to many people, we find ourselves doing in 2022 what Frederick Engels and the young Hegelians were doing in 1841 uh, reclaiming what has been um, uh, diminished, distorted, and even thrown away. And that is the Black Radical Tradition. As you know, in uh, 2016, uh, we organized at at Temple University and Mother Bethel AME Church and the Church of the Advocate here in Philadelphia, a conference entitled Reclaiming Our Future, the Black Radical Tradition in Our Time. And kind of that's where we are now, reclaiming the Black Radical Tradition, reclaiming radical democratic resistance, and one could add working-class resistance and anti-imperialism in the 21st century.
0: Right, because it's important to grasp that those things are very much related. And the Black radical tradition, I think, is, you suggest, the position that, that was foisted upon Black people in the United States. Yeah. Gives them a certain perspective uh, about the brutality of this of this project. Um, I, whenever I was teaching U.S. history, I would speak about this this tradition, generally speaking, and over time, and point to certain people who uh, embodied aspects of it, like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and, and Malcolm X and um, and Paul Robeson, people people like that, and even. Pre Civil War, you look at um, Frederick Douglass's opposition to the Mexican American War, where he says, Our nation seems resolved to rush on in her wicked career, though the road be ditched with human blood and paved with human skulls. So he's really denouncing this in quite harsh terms. And um, he says, uh, We beseech our countrymen to leave off this horrid conflict, abandon their murderous plans, and forsake the way of blood peradventure our country may yet be saved. Um, and, and he's calling for them to, you know, let, let the press, the pulpit, the church, the people unite at once and let petitions flood the halls of Congress asking for the instant recall of our forces from Mexico. So e- even then, in this earlier state, the, some awareness of the, what the U.S. was all about in this, you know, the way that it had dominated other nations was present even before Reconstruction what happens in the aftermath of Reconstruction to give rise to um, a broader, to the, this current of, of thought? How does, I mean, Reconstruction, as you say, is obviously under in, underemphasized in all of our history curriculum, such as it is, and that history curriculum doesn't seem to influence discourse in the mainstream very much anyway. So how, how does this, for a lot of people that would listen to this, they don't, I'll vaguely recall recon- learning about Reconstruction in high school, maybe, if they're lucky. How, why is this so so critical to in, in terms of giving rise to this, this, this very incisive critique of, of the whole U.S. project?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois kind of situates the whole problem. Uh, you know, of course, he saw the Civil War and Reconstruction as uh, kind of one thing and, um, and he saw it as a re- the America, America's second revolution. And the defeat of reconstruction in a sense for him also was the defeat of the victory over the slavocracy and the establishment Uh, through the 14th and 15th Amendments of black folk as citizens, full citizens of the United States. And the uh, attempt to implement that uh, in Reconstruction was a furtherance of a revolutionary process. The defeat of Reconstruction is a counter-revolution in the deepest sense of what that means, was not just, you know, Supreme Court decisions and uh, the rise of states' rights and Plessy v. Ferguson. It's way deeper than that. It is a deep counter-revolution. It therefore forces Black folk and their allies to have to think how we move forward, how do we fight for citizenship, which is the right to vote, the right to be protected by law, et cetera, uh, in this environment. And so, you know, you get Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk, uh, which is the first, I think, real crystallization of what this fight is. And what he says, in effect, is that without the right to vote, We cannot be citizens, Uh, and therefore Booker T. Washington and his compromise are wrong. We want the right to vote. We want to be citizens. And if we are citizens, we are then able to exercise something close to self-determination. So... Du Bois is first, you know, the souls of black folk, he talks about the color line and double consciousness and and our, our what he calls our spiritual strivings and and reconstruction and all of that kind of stuff. But then he also says that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line which must be read as the problem of bourgeois democracy
0: and oh, go ahead, yes yeah. yeah so when he says that that may be a broader critique than it seems on the surface is there is that he is he say he's saying more than just as a, per, a perspective as a as a, a black man in a country dominated by like white people and white power structures i mean what. Am I right in that? that it's that it's it's more of a problem with that, that bedevils all of society in different in different ways or how, how would you. Well, he's, he's looking at the
1: society. I mean, he's not a black separatist. And he's saying, in effect, that no one can be free if black people are not free. There is no democracy if black people are not a part of it. So the color line is a, uh, a way metaphorically of talking about the denial of rights, the denial of citizenship, and the uh, undermining of democracy. But let, let's be clear, Du Bois doesn't stop with the souls of black folk. you know. Uh, 15 years, 16 years later, he writes a a companion, a successor piece called Dark Water. And he admits, I'm now more radical. The, The path of liberal democracy and educating the masses and educating the ruling class did not work. And we have no other alternative but the path of radical democracy and full out anti imperialism.
0: And how does he come to understand imperialism as being a part of this whole structure? Because my understanding was that one of the regrets, biggest regrets of his life was, if I hope I'm not misremembering this, was supporting World War I. Uh, yeah, and, really Woodrow
1: Wilson and the US going into World War One in 1918. Yeah, he did. He felt he made a. a tactical mistake. I don't know. What are are the years
0: of, what years did Dark Water come out? 1919, 1920. Okay. Okay. So this was after, it's funny that that would have been the chronology of it because I, I myself worked for, had a job working for Barack Obama. And after, after that, I thought, oh, this was, I I mean, I, I'm not going to, I'm not comparing myself to him. I'm just saying, in my mind, that's funny because I can relate to having, I can relate to having been duped, and so, and so I, I I appreciate that. But
1: even uh, Woodrow Wilson's propaganda was even greater than Barack Obama's, because he was talking about uh, a world organization and world democracy and his fourteen points, and
0: du Bois. self-determination, self-determination.
1: Absolutely. And self-determination. And that's why, right after World War One at the Versailles, while Versailles is going on in Paris, Du Bois has organized a pan—the first Pan African Congress—and there he uh, argues that the peace and the right to self-determination must be extended to Africa, and the decolonization—and he was thinking more gradually of Africa beginning. With the former German colonies in Africa, uh, but of course, uh, he and his uh, supporters could not move the Western imperialist countries away from colonialism. And certainly, uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, while not a uh, you know nation, the United States didn't have colonies, big colonies in Africa. Uh, the United States. Uh, would not become uh, this democratic force on a world scale.
0: Right, and when uh, Ho Chi Minh traveled to Versailles and he rented a, a tuxedo and a, and a top hat and he wanted to speak to Woodrow Wilson and he was denied, he wanted to make that case and yeah. he gets denied after World War One, just like Truman denies him after World War II. Hmm. Um, Roosevelt, I think, wanted independence for Vietnam Uh, For Indochina, and and, but he was he was dead, and Truman was like kind of the old guard. So this was, but this for as far as Du Bois goes, and the broken promises of Wilson, that was key. And the propaganda, the propaganda thing was like nothing before it. It it actually that's what gives propaganda a bad name. Is what happens in World War One, people start to think we were duped, and there's there's more anti-war sentiment than probably any point in history after World War One. They almost they came close to nationalizing the weapons makers, even, Mm. if you can believe that. So this was, this must have been very disillusioning. And he, the first Pan-African Congress, they're advocating for decolonization. Does he see Wilson as somebody too weak to stand up to these colonial powers, or does he see him as somebody who was deceptive from the beginning and never had any intention of holding true to that?
1: Deceptive. uh, And he realized, you know, you have to take see, Du Bois expands the concept of the color line to the world situation and to Africa and Asia. And just like in 1903, when the color line becomes a metaphor for the undermining of democracy, the world color line and colonization becomes uh, the the major reason why the world is not democratic and why the world uh, will have another major war. Du Bois uh, almost predicts it, that without democracy, there, is, there will be rising uh, conflict among the major European powers who will always fight, will always be in a struggle uh, over the rest of the world, what he called, what Du Bois called the darker nations, the colonial peoples,
0: right this, is, this is both World War one and World War II seem to be wars fought by colonial powers over over colonial issues and imperialist issues I mean the the Germans seem to be threatening the British Empire by trying to integrate the Middle East and the Balkans and so on I mean I, I kind of I can believe that the British were behind the Franz Ferdinand assassination uh, I've read there's a couple of scholars that make that case the black hand was a because and I, I say this in part based on seeing what they do the C- the CIA adopts British techniques and their in these sort of things with these front groups and everything they were doing this forever they were like the original imperialists and they were looking at these this you know the Germans threatened to connect a railroad that would tra- and there was all this oil discovered over there and it was became you know a, a question as to who was going to get it And then you know Britain takes these countermeasures and so on, so this was that was prescient to see that that the fact that they hadn't gotten rid of these this imperial system was almost guaranteeing another another war. Um, And so where where did this leave him in the in the twenties and thirties in terms of confronting the uh, the fact that the overall system hadn't changed? Uh, How does he respond to events? that lead up, that lead up to the second world war.
1: <laughs> well, certainly, you know, one of the, one of the big events that, that many historians argue was a cause for the ending of world war one was the Russian revolution of October, 1917. And this shifts, uh, black activists, uh, thinking and you have the rise of a serious and revolutionary black left. Now, in some ways, uh, it's younger and Du Bois is not in front of it. You know, organizations like the African Blood Brotherhood and the rise of black socialists. And then um, with the formation of the Communist Party, black members of the Communist Party, uh, who go uh, full-throatedly in support of the October Revolution. Du Bois is hesitant. He says, I don't know. And he's attacked by people like Claude McKay and some of the other younger people. Uh, He will, however, in 1926, go to Russia. And he says in an article in the Pittsburgh Courier Black newspaper, if what I have seen is Bolshevism, then I am a Bolshevik. And, um, and then going forward, I mean, that's he remains on the left wing, not just of the black movement, but of American politics. And he aligns uh, increasingly with other left wing thinkers in politics and culture and in ideas. Uh, and he increasingly sees the Black struggle as not uh, exclusively and in many ways not solely a matter of what goes on in the United States. But the Black question becomes a matter of world uh, historic processes. If the world forces of anti-colonialism and socialism gain the upper hand, And black leaders and thinkers are aligned with these world movements. It is to the advantage of black people. And it is therefore not as, you know, as the situation is today too too often, a matter of, oh, this is just a domestic matter and we will only solve it uh, through uh, the black leaders aligning with white liberalism Uh, to change laws and maybe uh, so on like that. Du Bois said, no, the struggle must be, the black struggle must associate itself with the world revolutionary process. And he writes a novel that's published in 1929 called Dark Princess uh, about an Indian princess who comes to the United States and, hooks up with a black man who becomes a worker and she joins the U.S. working class and the black worker. And and what Du Bois allegorically is saying, look, India and China and Africa are the future, that the future of black folk is with the world's majority. And no matter what the white ruling class in the United States might think or do, We have to determine our own path, our own direction, our own trajectory. And then, you know, I I could say a few other things with Black Reconstruction in America, which is published in 1935, where in at least three chapters, uh, I can recall off the top of my head, he talks about the possibility of a dictatorship of the Black proletariat. His words in three states, um, and it is a thought experiment, it is an interpretation, but it is also a suggestion of possibilities uh, in this country. Um, and if, you know, just again, if under reconstruction, let us say in the 1870s, if, In the three states that he talks about, Mississippi, Louisiana, and South Carolina, a dictatorship of the black proletariat could be established. Would that not be a step towards a dictatorship of the proletariat in general in the United States? So he's thinking in this way. I could give examples going forward after World War II, but I'll stop
0: there. Well, yeah, before we get to that... Um, because I I would that's definitely worth talking about. But the other contemporaries that are famous uh, of Du Bois, we we mentioned Booker T. Washington, and I think maybe the less that's said about him, the better in terms of like trying to. I don't want to spend too much time on him. Um, but you know the five the five fingers of the hand. He like argues basically like don't complain about segregation because we're like the five fingers of the hand. It's uh very, very weird to read today. But someone else who's kind of more enigmatic, as it was a contemporary of his, Booker T. Washington, um, what does what is Du Bois' opinion of, you know, the Back to Africa movement and, and Booker uh, T's. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Marcus, Garvey's, uh, of, um, Marcus Garvey's version of Marcus Garvey's version of, of back, the Back to Africa movement and all that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
0: <laughs> uh, Du Bois didn't think much
1: of it. Uh, and. That is a part of even the current debates around Black radicalism versus cultural nationalism or a separatist back to Africa movement. Uh, uh, First of all, Du Bois and others uh, exposed that, um, uh, that Marcus Garvey never believed that most Black Americans would go back to Africa or even... Many black Americans would go back to Africa. Uh, But it was a slogan which ultimately said uh, what Booker T. Washington proposed in 1895, that we are separate as the fingers on the hand. uh, And black folk had no uh, real interest or should have no interest in fighting for a democratic and radical democratic remaking of the United States because our interests and those of the majority of Americans were so separate that there could not be common ground in struggle. This also manifested as uh, not supporting any civil rights for black folks. If it's all about going back to Africa and in the meantime setting up businesses in the United States, uh, why, you know, sub, you know, give up the struggle for the right to vote? Give up the struggle for protection under the law? The Fifteenth and Fourteenth Amendment don't don't mean anything. Our agenda must be, and I put inverted quotes here, uh, economic and separatist. And Africa becomes kind of a trope uh, because they're not really talking about Africa, but it's a fictive uh, construction. Uh, And Garvey was not talking about African liberation, certainly from the British, because he made the statement that the British are most able to rule Africa and I'm most able to serve the British. So he was not an anti-colonialist at all. Uh, And so, you know, uh, just a quick thing, you know, when we get to the Cold War and McCarthyism and the radical wing of the black movement uh, becomes targeted and people like Du Bois and Robeson and Claudia Jones and, and, and people like Rosa Parks who are themselves radical and socialist and leftist, have to uh, rebrand themselves, so to speak, and not openly express their total political viewpoint. You know, when that happens, then you have uh, unimpeded the rise of a Garveyism, a neo-Garveyism. So uh, the claim becomes, and this is during the civil rights movement, that Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement are going in the wrong direction, that this is the direction of Du Bois. And of course, Du Bois, they associated in a distorted way with a, quote, talented 10th. Uh, and Garvey was presented as the real black man. And so going forward, the, uh, uh, the nationalist separatists who are not revolutionary nationalists, by the way, are not anti-colonialists, by the way, they then say that Du Bois is an agent of of the left, is an agent of white people, uh, is not black enough. Look, he's light-skinned. He's not as dark as Garvey. You get all of this in the 1960s. And so it becomes a parallel political uh, strategy to diminish Du Bois, to make Du Bois invisible, which he then became for about 50 years. It was only with the, inverted quotes again, end of the first Cold War that Du Bois can be mentioned again. But then as he is mentioned and and stamps are made in his image, and and you get even courses taught on him in in uh, in colleges. And David Levering Lewis writes this uh, two volume biography of him. All of this happens, but at the same time he is being and I put quotes praised in order
0: to be rediminished and destroyed again. I mean he's a person who in his lifetime had to suffer a good bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it's interesting even to know uh, the things your critique of Garvey makes, per, makes perfect sense with the, uh, I would just add the puzzling aspect of the, of his also being harassed by people like J, you know, J Edgar Hoover, who really cut his teeth on that kind of a, of a group. Was this just, was the reaction from the state to Garvey, more of a reflexive you know uh, response to the red scare and in any sort of worry about about black people organizing in any and mobilizing in any sort of way even if his, he's ultimately not revolutionary that that still even even that level of activism was alarming to them or why was he subjected to this uh persecution from the state because he's ultimately forced out of the out of the country
1: yeah yeah well You know, the way uh, J. Edgar Hoover and those reacted to him in the 1920s is very different from what Garveyism as a, you know, uh, how could you say, uh, a political posture that says, well, we're not involved in this struggle of communism versus capitalism because we're interested in black folk." I don't know that whether that makes sense uh, to you. you know, oh,
0: it, it 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 does in terms of how he could be repurposed later. Repurposed. Uh,
1: now, uh, of course, you know, uh, after World War One, uh, the U.S. was going after anything that appeared to be the U.S. state after anything that appeared to be oppositional. I don't care whether it was a black movement. Uh, who had all of these slogans and seemed to be militant. And I don't think Hoover understood the Garvey movement or Black people uh, as much as I understand the psychology of um, Mexican chihuahua dogs, you know. I mean, he just saw Black, he saw that, you know, and he saw Black and he saw red and he saw, you know, all of this talk. And he says, we have to shut them all down. And since Garvey was vulnerable because he was an immigrant, uh, he became, uh, in a certain sense, a way of of, of, uh, saying to America, look, uh, these black immigrants, these Russian immigrants, they're bringing uh, anti-American ideas into the country, and we have to get them out of here. Uh, But... Uh, what Garvey suffered in the 1920s was minor compared to what the Du Bois's and Robesons and others uh, were subjected to in the 1950s and 60s.
0: I definitely want to talk about that. but First, I think Du Bois, because the time that he was alive and active and that he spans these very crucial periods in the 20th century... He's a a good way to trace this. What is his response to the New Deal and and eventually America's entry into World War II? Because there's a fascists in Japan and in Italy and Germany were definitely pursuing a horrendous project, and, and he can't have any illusions about the U.S. as a white knight. But what is his response to the to the New Deal and to the and eventually to World War II? You know, he supports the New Deal. He sees he sees the crisis,
1: the economic crisis and the depression, creating conditions for a type of a social democracy. And he's really down and he praises guys like Henry Hopkins and uh, Henry Wallace, who are all a part of the administration. And uh, of course, he sees uh, the U.S in World War II as very different from World War One. By this time, he does see the Soviet Union and Stalin, by the way, and he never backs away from his high evaluation of Stalin as the leader of the Soviet Union. He saw World War II in a major way in Hitlerism and Nazism as serving the interests of Western imperialism by bringing the Soviet Union down and uniting Asia with Europe, this Eurasian uh, imagination of uh, European imperialism. Uh, And he is anti-fascist. He is anti-Nazi. He has, during this period, some sharp debates with the Communist Party, especially and with the NAACP that he's a a leader of, but he will be forced out of uh, because he disagrees with the direction of the NAACP, which by which he meant it's only uh, taking up legal questions and not addressing the economic problems of black people in the North and the South uh, And he doesn't feel that uh, the black movement and certainly the NAACP should concede the field of black poverty and black suffering either to the New Deal or to the Communist Party. And this will reach ahead in the struggle over Scottsboro. The communists take the leadership of it and a good leadership legally and politically. They saved the Scottsboro uh, nine, they were called the Scottsboro Boys back then from execution, although they spent long period a long period in prison. Uh, du Bois felt that the NAACP should have been a central part of that. He opposes the Walter White leadership. He's forced out or he decides to leave in uh, 1934, the NAACP. Uh, He moves further to the left. He joins with people like Robeson and Alpheus Hunton and others to form the Council on African Affairs, which is an anti-colonial movement. After World War II, he continues his peace anti-colonialist and anti-imperialist activism. He will support Henry Wallace and his run for the presidency. Uh, He will become a a candidate for the Senate in New York himself. Uh, He sees the new United Nations organization as going beyond what Wilson had proposed in the League of Nations and he sees its charter and its human rights um, program as benefiting uh, the black struggle in the United States. In fact, he sees international law as it would emerge after World War II as a part of this world democratic project. Uh, But then he knows that anti-colonialism cannot go forward as long as nuclear weapons and the threat of nuclear war hangs over humanity. So he opposes, you know, nuclear weapons. And that's when the U.S. government targets him as an agent of a foreign government. And he says, I'm not an agent of any government. I'm an agent of peace. And they say, well, you're a communist. And then he He says, well, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called communists. Is that praise for the communists or condemnation for the peacemakers? He cut right to the heart of it. Uh, And so he's involved in the late 40s through the 1950s in not just a battle to save himself from going to jail and to get his passport back, by the way, but a huge ideological struggle. And he's not... Pessimistic, he he faces it with vigor and um, and passion, and he wants because he feels his ideological hand is stronger than that of the ruling class, and it was, it really was. Uh, and so, yeah, I think
0: uh, that, his ideological hand was stronger, but his material hand was no, not, as is always the case here, right?
1: And that's his point. He is waging ideological struggle. You know, uh, who wins the ideological battle wins the future, now, no matter how long that takes. And he was prepared to sacrifice himself for the ideas of progress. So he wasn't afraid of going to jail, of course. And as soon as he gets his passport back, what does he do in the late 50s? He goes to Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, and China, where it is illegal to go to at that time. So he's not, it's not like he's afraid or trembling. He welcomes the fight, as it
0: were. Right. And these are things that are so um, their implications are so big, and yet they're not even really thought about that much. Two issues in particular that he's taking that he's that he's mentioning here. Which which are not even directly related to like to capitalism, the nuclear issue is absolutely insane, and it's a a commentary on the depravity of the people in charge. That you know, like Obama comes into office saying he wants to get rid of nuclear weapons, and instead he spends you know a trillion dollars to modernize them, which is to do to do what to make them more usable. I mean, there's no there's no possible justification for this, and yet this is not remarked on. That much in our society, we just kind of take that for granted. And international law, additionally, it sound, it's it's to the point that it, it could all people would reflexively almost sort of sh- shrug or or be dismissive of uh, of any sort of exhortation or exaltation of international law as as something that could be transformative. But if the U.S. most of these conflicts that we see if if the us for example just adhered to international law or even adhered to domestic law because we've ratified the un charter which makes it the highest law on the land right. and it outlaws aggression which means that all these people are criminals who are constantly violating it and we just we just shrug at it but it would actually be revolutionary if just countries couldn't act aggressively towards other you know commit aggression against other countries and and this is I mean, this is where his ideological hand was. I mean, all of the the arguments, he can win all of the arguments. It just is a it's a a horrifying commentary that it's pretty easy to figure out that he's correct on these issues. And yet here we are. Yeah. But but see, but this is the point.
1: You know, it's a protracted struggle, Aaron, you know, uh, you know, losing uh, a political fight is not the same as losing the fight. And that is why I said, you know, in the beginning, in 2022, we're kind of where Frederick Engels and the young, what they call the young Hegelians were in 1841, to defend the great man, to defend the great ideas of a previous generation, you know? And uh, this is what we have to do. I mean, the black radical tradition is not just something to talk about and to write dissertations and books about. It is something to be fought for, for the very reasons that you presented and that I presented. Because here is the kernel, the rational kernel of the uh, world of the future, a vision of a future, something to be fought for. And every revolution, uh, every radical change is really fighting for ideas and fighting for a vision and then the fight to implement it in economic and social cultural terms. But you, first of all, have to have the ideological framing and the imaginative framing of a different world. And that's where Du Bois is so prescient. And so valuable, and everything that diminishes that, or everything that thinks they have another path, uh, is uh, has to be critically engaged.
0: There is a very uh devious i think current that comes up again and again which is to speak about these these struggles and these truths that have been established and handed down as being somehow antiquated and old and thus implicitly (laughs) conservative in some way and so the new thing might be some some repackaging of like entrepreneurship etc etc and or Uh, You know, wokeness, I think, is a is a variation on this today. And I mean, when I say wokeness, I mean that kind of superficial, immaterial version of it. It's this is a real conundrum and this part of not being able to this is something Professor Kuznick mentioned when he was on uh, with us recently, that the younger people, he's troubled by the fact that they don't as often have. This vision that another world is possible—that something that in recent decades, as compared to the '60s, this this idea of of a different utopian, you know, like maybe EU utopian, you know, like a a a good but possible world is could could be there, and that that's missing, and we've got to, and that it has to be fought for.
1: Well, you have to you have to also consider the way at least three generations of young people have been educated in universities Uh, and and what they're taught. I mean, you know, very few, if any, know Du Bois the way we're talking about him, but they probably know Audre Lorde or Foucault, you know, but they do not know Du Bois. And, And then it's this eclectic hodgepodge where everything is the same, everybody is equivalent. No, they're all not equivalent. Foucault is not the equivalent of W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, And we need to make that clear. Derrida is not, these French thinkers, and certainly in the American soil and framework, have no equivalence to a thinker like Du Bois, who spent his whole life trying to understand the trajectories and paths of struggle for human emancipation in the United States and on a world scale. That's not Foucault. That's not his purpose. Whatever his merits are, that's not Derrida, that's not Lacan, you know, uh, or or whoever. And certainly, um, uh, as we were talking about this earlier, uh, the 1619 project, while Sounding radical, sounding new is really a counter-revolutionary ideological position, uh, uh, which. But it's quite-
0: very—it's sh- very shrewd. It's a—it's yeah. novel in terms of it's—they're repackaging this in a in a, in a novel way. So, but sorry to interrupt, but I. No,
1: I mean I, I, I you know, the, this idea of the marketing and packaging and. Turning into celebrities, those who represent ideas that the ruling elite have packaged and are marketing, is something quite new. We've never faced it. And of course, once you get social media, where everything is personalized in a certain way, uh, there is no sense of an objective ideological struggle, uh, no idea of a clash of ideas of freedom versus uh, colonialism and imperialism, uh, well, you know, uh, it's shrewd, as you say. But nonetheless, the essence of conflict of ideas and of imaginations of a human future are there.
0: Yeah, this is such a strange time. Uh, The COVID business is by itself very disorienting and pretty awful in terms of politics because it's difficult for people to do anything together which is yeah. the essence of politics by definition and the optics of some of these issues surrounding race now are are so weird in that the corporate america is doing more to promote and celebrate blackness superficially in ways that are, are so bizarre to me, it's uh, it's where I am watching commercials and and the way that they present black people not in an unfavorable way exactly, but it's so false and uh, it's, it's so part of some other agenda that I don't even think is, is necessarily tied to the bottom line. Although maybe it does become good marketing in this climate, but it's just sort of feeding this this totally unreal uh, a, a racial dynamic at, at the moment. I mean, did you ever? Th- did you ever foresee anything like this evolving? Because it's bizarre to me.
1: <laughs> I, I never foresaw it, but yet I understand it perfectly. Uh, because in a lot of ways, you know, it's the repurposing, the rebranding, the remarketing, the reselling of capitalism to the people who are its victims. Um, you know, um, uh, to disorient working people, really to divide working people, uh, and that's a big part of it. Uh, to um, and uh, to do, you know, kind of what Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum people, are talking about—a great reset or a capitalist reset, uh, which. <laughs> uh, You know, like Klaus Schwab was very transparent. He said, look, uh, it was, you know, the climate thing, the climate question was not enough to alarm people to force them back into the arms of the state, of the ruling elite. uh, And to, uh, if we can get them, if, if something comes up like COVID now, And we can scare the people to death and make them think that we, the ruling elite, are doing everything to save them from this evil virus and the people who don't want, who don't believe what we're saying about it. Uh, If we can do that, then we give ourselves time, you know crisis of legitimacy. People don't trust the government. People don't trust the ruling elite. They don't trust universities. They don't trust anything associated with the elite. Well, if we can tell them that, look, we're all in this virus thing together, then the ruling elite is not any longer, at least they hope, seen as this uh, outside and evil force. Uh, so this quote, great capitalist reset, and then on top of it, they're very transparent. Uh, at least Janet Yellen, after the, uh, the climate conference in Glasgow, she said, yeah, we can save the planet and, and it will cost anywhere from 130 to $150 trillion. Duh. I mean, where is that going to come from? Uh, but that is a part of a remaking. Of capitalism, at least in a soft power sense, and then of course all of this war and brinksmanship with China and Russia is the other side of it. Can't there can't be an alternative system in this world? That's to be us or
0: nobody. Right. That that's where I think that they're going to fail in these grandiose plans because I, I do think that these the the, the woke the wokeness has such a strange effect on people in that it's not that everybody buys it I because they don't. They're still your sort of more conservative people and this kind of racism, which is kind of a mass of false consciousness, Absolutely. really. And I think it exacerbates them It exa- that they, these kind of optics, t- they, they take on more symbolic significance to a, a, a number of people who are more, con- you know, um, probably opposed to wokeness in general, like say that they have a certain amount of racism and they also feel a certain amount of insecurity. You know, white people are insecure as well. It's not, it's, and it's not as though black people have been uplifted during this time period in a meaningful sense, minus the lucky few who get to be the beneficiaries of, of these of these things. But it's while they're, they're feeling very insecure and, and their perception is that society is mobilizing to help undeserving black people because look on the TV, they're always talking about this. They're always talking about that. And you know, some people are well off, and they're just kind of going to be kind of, ra- and they're a bit racist. But then others are who are insecure. It has this effect of also helping the elites by sort of pitting people against each other. Even as the elites pretend to be working against racist, racist mm-hmm. um, against racism, they're actually heightening it in some ways in terms of the general population. And it, it what it, it deflects any sort of. Bottom up pressure, I think, by just pitting people sort of against each other, and and it's it, it, so it, it on top of the COVID stuff as well. There's there's that aspect of it. You're at your people are pitted against each other because you're the reason that we're having all these problems because you don't want to get vaxed, and then the other people are like, well, we don't want mandates, or maybe we just flat out don't believe that COVID exists. I mean, there is that element, and then there's but there's other people who or people who like. You're, you're against the mandate. So you're the problem. And it, it's really had a an amazing effect on them. But meanwhile, the rest of the world is marching on. And okay. so this is, I think, what is the more hopeful thing. But so this but this this tr- the black radical tradition and, and you know, looking at Du Bois's life now, we're, we're getting closer to the end. So in a way, I kind of don't even want to talk about the, start to talk about the 60s because, you know, maybe for a future episode down the road. We could go more into it because it's not something you could do justice to in a few minutes. But I think this idea of Du Bois as a figure whose wisdom, you know, gets carried on and, and, and is still relevant to today. And it, and it could also we could look at it to ground us in these disorienting times. And it's, not, it's notable that by the end of their lives, Malcolm X and, um, and MLK were in similar positions to where Du Bois was in much of his life. There's my no question. And I, you know, I, I see people like you in this in this tradition, and 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 somehow he stays in the public eye while holding to this, and that's Cornell West, uh, while holding to the the general tenets of black of 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 the black radical tradition. He's really pretty brilliant in terms of being out there and managing to present these things in a way that doesn't disqualify him from having any public presence. These it seems like these are the people. These are people we should look at in these times, because not everything has changed and there are ideas that are still important and we can't be distracted from them. Just in
1: reference to the 1960s and now, I think people underestimate how deep and how transformative of the nation the 1960s were. I, I would argue against wokeism, that the nation and white Americans in particular as a group are less racist today than they were in 1945 or 1950. You know, um, in the 1930s, when there was this great movement to organize the unorganized workers in industry, especially in auto and steel and electrical production, and in transportation, the communists and the labor movement came forward with a simple slogan, Black and white unite and fight. They didn't say Black and woke white people. They said Black and white workers. Whether you come from Alabama and are white or West Virginia and think that you are superior to black people, what you will discover in your own life world is that from a class standpoint, you have more in common with your white class sister and brother than you have with a white person who opposes unions, let us say. So that simple slogan And then, of course, the civil rights movement and, you know, the just magnificent language of Martin Luther King. And there is no equivalent to him, by the way. There is no equivalent. Calling for all humanity struggle. Diffusing what the racist and a big part of the ruling class would have wanted a struggle between black and white ordinary people. Diffuse that, saying, in effect, if black people win, the nation wins. And then out of that, the great image of Muhammad Ali. You see what I'm saying? The nation is not the same after all of that. The music of black folk, The blues, the rhythm and blues becomes the music of generations going forward. Like the great blues singer Muddy Waters said, the blues had a baby and they called it rock and roll. You know, it is derivative of the black blues. This is in the DNA of the country right now. So to call all of these white people Uh, just out-of-control racists and Nazis is a claim that has no social scientific verification. I would argue white America is less racist today than it was in the 1950s. That doesn't mean that we're where we need to be but we're not where the woke crowd and the 1619 crowd and the counter revolution of 1776 crowd say we are. We are not in a situation of colonial uh, settlerism where all white people are part of the settler uh, group and all black people are oppressed and all white people benefit from the oppression of black people. We are in a situation where black and white, poor and working people and lower middle class see themselves, recognize themselves, and are, in fact, more similar than they were prior to the civil rights movement. So we're in a, we're in a more positive situation. Now, postmodernism, which fragments everything purposely, fragmenting the people, disuniting the people. And there's a reason why every theory that does that is sold and promoted by the ruling class. And I would argue these are not radical theories. They're anti-Dubois. They are anti the Black radical tradition. They are anti-everything that would... uh, advanced democracy, would advance the struggle for peace, would advance the struggle against an out-of-control 1%.
0: The, the, the individualism and this, this idea of these individualistic identity aspects, you know, that, that these things derive from postmodernism that they promote, it's, That's it's it. wild. That's
1: it. And, and, you know, the fact that that ideology and that propaganda controls the universities Mean that now you know you got so many young people coming going to college, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed and coming out completely depressed, uh, and and uh, alienated, with a pessimistic view of society and the future, and who see, you know, them like you take a city like Philadelphia, you know, you get. Uh, Educated, highly educated uh, young people who stay in the city, but don't see themselves in any way connected to this large community or population of working people, you know, who are undereducated or uneducated, who are poor. Philadelphia is the poorest of the large cities in the country. I mean, you know, so, and they don't have an ideological framework to unite them with the black working class, with white workers in the city. They can only see white as racist and they only, they see themselves as a uh, moral crusaders and zealots. We're going to, you know, uh, uh, Destroy all evil, all suffering in the United States by going after the white working
0: class. (laughs) Right, and that's where in this this very the the way that the these anti racist crusaders speak about these things, or even the way that they speak about white supremacy, is look. White supremacy is something to understand, and it's important. But if you look at the think about America before the Civil War, okay, was there white was Was it a white? Was there white supremacy in the United States? Obviously. Where was it the strongest? Well, obviously, in the places where they had slaves. Mm -hmm. But where in America was the median white person the worst off? That's the South, right? I mean, that's that's where there's white supremacy. So they're supreme. If they're supreme, why are they the worst off? And and this kind of a commonsensical thing is never really presented to people. But when you think about it, it's it's really key to understanding this and somebody like George Carlin, he's a comedian. Right. And he, but he was talking about the poor people, you know, they, they they exist, they exist and they're always going to be here because they're needed. They need to be here to scare the shit out of everyone else. <laughs> and I mean, and in a way that's like a, I don't, I don't know that he meant it specifically this way, although he may have because in part, because he was a smart guy, but this is like the, this is how white supremacy really functions. And it's not just something that should be done because you you care about the the welfare of black people, which you should care about, but it's that it's it's making it's making it worse for just about everybody except for the tiny minority that own everything.
1: Yeah, and let me show you this. It's so interesting. You know, you take this idea of the counter revolution of 1776. The argument is that the British Crown was anti racist, and the American revolutionaries were race were the racist. You know. Uh, the Somerset case, you know, case people didn't know, outlawed slavery in England. It did not outlawed in Jamaica or Trinidad uh, or, you know, colonialism in India. You know what I'm saying? So this idea that the most progressive part of white people in the world were those aligned to the British crown. Well, the same person will argue in in, uh, 2022, that the most progressive part of white people are the woke corporate elites of HBO, of Coca-Cola.
0: Goldman Goldman Sachs and and Lockheed.
1: Absolutely. And the great reservoir of racism and white supremacy and fascism is the white working class. So it's not a big leap from the British crown is vanguard of anti-slavery to the corporate 1% of today are the woke uh, and, and uh, vanguard of the fight for black freedom.
0: Gerald Horne writes The Counter-Revolution of 1776, and it seems that he has some disagreements with the 1619 crowd, even though they're sort of derived from his work. Am I, I, am, am I wrong about that? Or You say he
1: has, I don't see any separation. Between the two,
0: okay. Well, then I, I would I should look more at that. I always because I did I my understanding of that, and I think I would dis, I disagreed with his analysis somewhat in that it seems that the logic of the of the slaveholding class finding the Somerset case worrisome among other things because it left open the question as to what would happen in the colonies, mm-hmm. whether whether it would eventually be outlawed, which it which it was. But, of course, the British are horrendous in, the, in everything that they do, so you can't put a white hat on the British, obviously. But is his, you know, I, I don't I, I'd like to know more about what Horn says about all of this because in some ways his, he, he seems very sensible, but does he ultimately see race as being subordinated, subordinated to class interests and so on? or is it, does he have it the other way around? That's I guess something I'd like to cl- have clarified about what he um. argues about because it's hard to put a white hat on George Washington. Uh, no, no, no. No, no. And that's not, and
1: that's not the point. Right. The American revolution was not, you know, uh, was not dominated by one single ideological position, nor was engine for independence from Britain to maintain slavery. There were both anti-slave and pro-slave forces in it. Uh, and, uh, and then there were black people, um, some of whom sided with the British, some of whom were part of the American Revolution. However, it is an extraordinary claim to call it a counter-revolution and say that from the standpoint of Black people, especially the enslaved, it was a counter-revolution. Well, I don't know that there's evidence of that. Uh, Slave or, quote, free, Uh, for the most part saw the American Revolution during the 18th century and into the 19th century as part of a process I don't care whether it's Frederick Douglass or uh, uh, Alexander Cromwell, whoever you want to name Harriet Tubman the point was that they did not have a naive position that uh the American Revolution would resolve the question of slavery. They hoped it would, but if it didn't, as they cite, the struggle continued, and they continued to fight. I mean, the position is, I think, at the end of the day, a reactionary one, and uh, the purpose of it uh, politically is to assert As Horn says in the preface, that we have to put aside the slogan of "Workers of the World, Unite," and substitute for it what I call a Garveyite slogan: "Black People of the World, Unite."
0: Wow! Yeah, I'm I'm gonna go and reread that. I have the book laying around, and I've I I haven't read that, but that's I I and I think it was came out a few years ago, and I've done more looking into different aspects of these things since then so i, I really want to go back and, and look at it i thought that i had thought that there were some significant disagreements between what the 1619 project did with with uh with horn some of horn's theses and but if but if they didn't then that is interesting and i was i, I was well, not aware of all that yeah kind of the uh, intellectual genealogy of the 1619
1: project is a, uh, I think it was published in the late 60s, a book by Lerone Bennett entitled They Came Before the Mayflower. Uh, and, and of course he makes, in the book he makes the claim that uh, the nation originates in 1619, not in 1776. Uh, well, the nation state uh, begins in with the revolution of 1776. You know, we're talking about a, a rebellion against a colonial power. Well, you know, did you, you may have seen that. Uh, some people saw that as reactionary, which the 1619 Project does. But we don't know what the 1619 Project is or is not because it's been floated out about three different times. And uh, 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 Hannah Nicole Jones has changed her rhetoric and form- form- formulating of it several times. Uh, as, you know, the New York, and it's a New York Times project, let's be real.
0: Which, which to me alone, like that is a that, that is an entity where when people talk about, Oh, you know, you shouldn't go on Fox because Tucker Carlson, yada yada. It's like what has done more damage than the New York Times. Please, I mean, not 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 to put a, not to say anything good about Tucker Carlson, Fox, et cetera, et cetera. But really, in terms of impact of bad things, who's worse than the Times? Well, the Times uh, has there ever been a, an imperialist war that the New York Times didn't support, uh, including- or a coup or a coup that they didn't run interference for? Yeah, absolutely, Absolutely.
1: including the idea of weapons of mass destruction, Uh, and you know what that has led to, Uh, or uh, the current uh, brinksmanship of the uh, Biden administration. You You know, there's a lot of political fluidity going on these days, and that's why, you know, if you fall into the embrace of the New York Times and the, quote, woke elite, uh, and you see a Tucker Carlson as everything that's wrong and conservative and nativist and white supremacist, well, give him credit. He attacks the war, this war talk in the Ukraine. I mean, and really goes after it.
0: Uh, Which in in and of itself is good. It potentially could lead to nuclear war and the annihilation of the human race. And so... Whatever you would say about it, whatever his motives are, which I would not say are good, anything that that diminishes the possibility or advocates for the diminishment of the possibility of potentially annihilating us all is, is good, <laughs> right? I mean, But look, Aaron, and I think you're aware of this.
1: You know, we're talking about uh, tactical and strategic relationships. You understand? Uh, you know, I kind of knew that the ruling elite and they were united almost to a person in having to get rid of Trump. It's not because Trump is a, quote, fascist. No, it's because he was a disruptor. And, you know, uh, why did they prefer Hillary Clinton? Because she said she wanted a no-fly Uh, zone in Syria, which would have meant war in 2016 or there around with Russia. You know, why did she laugh when they killed Gaddafi? Why was she a part of the right wing and damn near fascist overturning of the government in the Ukraine? And why did the ruling class support all of that? You know, I often ask the question, if Trump is a fascist, well, what did that make
0: Hillary? Right. I mean, he's, he's bad. He's not a good beard for the empire. That's what it comes down to. But no, 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 no. We're
1: not talking in absolutes right now. We're talking of a politically fluid environment. And we have to grow up and be uh, adults about this. We're not getting all we want in one year or five years. We're in a fluid situation defined by a deep political uh, crisis, and now economic crisis, of the most powerful imperialist nation on the face of the earth. In
0: world history, when it comes down to it.
1: Now, what do you do? What is to be done? Do we look for perfection? No, we roll with fluidity. Hold on to our principles, hold on to the ideological struggle. But please don't be, t- like Malcolm said, don't be took, had, and bamboozled by a real slick ruling class who can present black faces you know, as a switch and bait to do the old uh, white supremacist thing especially when it comes to the world's people. Oh, this is, we're, we're in a deep situation and I'm saying it's an exciting moment. The, uh, the return to the black radical tradition in its best sense, the defense of it, the recovery of it in this time and the extension of it is of vital uh, importance as part of the revitalization of an American left, which has been degraded and, I don't know,
0: you know. Defiled, let's see what would say. That's,
1: <laughs> defiled. I would say bastardized, uh, drug into the mud, thrown into the sewer, where everybody is a part of the Black radical tradition now. Yeah, this,
0: it, these, I think we can we can end it with that, and uh, I am hoping that we can come back and maybe have a deeper discussion of sixteen nineteen, perhaps with Catherine Liu. Uh, yeah. This is it's been really wonderful uh, speaking to you today, Doctor Tony Montero. Really an honor, and um, I, I I extend my sincere thanks to you for showing up today and and speaking with us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Doctor Aaron Good. I really appreciated it. Good to get back in touch with you. We've been separated for some time. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. If you enjoyed this discussion, you may want to check out Abby Martin's Empire Files episode on the Black Radical Tradition Conference. It's going to be in the show notes here. Along with Anthony Montero, I was on the conference steering committee, and in that capacity, I invited Abby to come and cover the event. The episode includes her interview with Cornell West. I actually met West at the conference, and he surprised me by giving me a hug. It was surreal, and I'm not too embarrassed to say that I was a little starstruck. I have to also give a shout out to Professor Joe Schwartz, who used his position to secure us a university venue for the conference. Joe is truly a wonderful person, scholar, and activist. Big thanks again to Anthony Montero. I also want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode, Casey Moore for the artwork, and Mock Orange for the music. In these dark times, let's all follow the example of the Black Radical tradition and help each other as we chase the light. I wasn't alive. I wasn't a guy, I wasn't a girl. I've been waiting with the dying guy, room number 35. From downtown, nothing was-